Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, political editor Adam Payne, and this week there's only one story in town, the Autumn Statement. Here with me to discuss what the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, announced on Thursday is an excellent selection of guests, if we don't say so ourselves. Firstly, we have Angela Regal, the Labour MP for Wallasey, Senior Economist at the Institute for Government, Ollie Bartram, and Adam Hawksby, Interim Director at the Think Tank Onward. Now, before we get into a discussion about what the Chancellor announced in the House of Commons yesterday, it's probably worth running through quickly just some of the standout policies in that statement. So when it comes to tax, taxes are going up. The threshold at which people pay the 45p rate will be lowered from 150k to just above 125k. Income tax thresholds will be frozen, which means millions more people paying tax. More funding was set out for NHS and schools, but big spending cuts are planned. However, interestingly, most of them are penciled in for after the next general election, which of course is scheduled for 2024, raising questions about whether those cuts actually go ahead. The cap on average household energy bills is going to rise to £3,000, meaning people face paying more for their gas and electricity next year, but the windfall tax on energy firms will rise from 25% to 35%. Pensions and benefits will rise in line with inflation. Now, that follows lots of pressure from a number of Tory backbenchers as well as um, the opposition. The national living wage will increase from £9.50 an hour um, to £10.42. There is lots, lots more. But the backdrop, the big picture, is pretty bleak. Living standards are expected to fall 7% over the next two years, the biggest fall on record. We face the highest tax burden since the end of World War II. The economy is already in recession and the rest that I haven't mentioned. So, Ollie of the IFG, thanks for joining us. Worth saying that you used to work at the Treasury for two years and Bears as well. So this isn't um, your first sort of fiscal event rodeo. You know, I've got the autumn statement in front of me here. It's an enormous wad of paper, lots of numbers. But trying to put things into layman's terms and in terms that touch upon how this is going to affect people's lives, what were the big takeaways for you? In terms of success at fiscal events, the bar has been set quite low over the past few months. However, what Hunt and uh, Sunak did to a much better extent than Trust and Kuateng did a couple of months ago yesterday was address the really worst economic outlook that we're facing. We're seeing a huge energy shock that's making us worse off and has left a pretty big hole in the public finances along with rising interest rates. As you said, they announced a series of mostly tax cuts but also spending cuts further down the line to address that. So they're sort of faced reality in that in that way, in a way that the previous government didn't. So that's a win, if a very easy one. Now, I think in terms of how this is going to affect people, the two big things I'll draw out are a big fall in living standards in the short term, um, and then questions about what happens to public spending and public services in the longer term. So in the short term, the OBR expects real household disposable income, so that's the main measure of household living standards, to sort of crash by 7% over the next two years. That will be the largest, and I think importantly, the steepest fall in living standards that we've seen since the Second World War. So that's likely to dominate politics for the next few years and frankly, to have some pretty dire human consequences. I think 
the question of further support for people, especially if next winter is as bad as this winter, will definitely come up again next year. And, and we may see some more public spending announcements around that. The other big question is what happens to public services. As you say, we saw a bit of extra money for health, a bit of extra money for education. But public services across the board are facing significant pressure, mostly from the rising wage demands of workers. Now, they face a choice because they haven't been given, other than health and education, a lot more money, either between trying to keep wages low, which is not good for public sector workers and will lead to lots of strike-related disruption, or meeting wage demands and having to cut back on public spending elsewhere, which, given the pressures faced by public services outlined in our performance tracker that came out about a month ago, will be very difficult. And then those bigger spending cuts that come in or are penciled in for after the next election could have even worse consequences if they are actually implemented. I mean, Hunt said everywhere gets a 1% rise, but we know that health, defence, other areas are usually protected, so they're allowed to grow a little bit more. So when you do the maths, that means real-term spending cuts for everywhere else, for DWP, for HMRC. Broad success in terms of achieving stability, but in terms of the impact on people, the two things to watch out for is that huge drop in living standards and potentially worsening public services. Angela, when the Chancellor was at the dispatch box yesterday, he used a few times the word compassionate and how the government would put finances back on a sustainable footing and restore economic credibility while also being compassionate. Do you feel that's the case now the dust has settled and you've had time to go over the details and study the implications for constituents like yours? No, we have to be clear that this is about 12 years of Tory failure and 12 weeks of absolute Tory chaos. We've had three prime ministers since August and four chancellors since August and five fiscal events this year. And they've chopped and changed and and, and the mini budget, which this is the attempt to recover from, cost about 30 billion. So no, uh, it's a mess that they have made much, much worse by the choices they made and the fact that they've done nothing to prepare for the cost of living crisis all year because they've been too obsessed with who ought to be the prime minister. So no, they've demonstrated that they're unfit to govern because they're too obsessed with themselves. If we look at this budget itself, and it is a budget, let's face it, yet another budget, as uh, has just been pointed out, we've got the the biggest fall in living standards uh, since the 1950s, since records began, 7% in the next two years. We've got a final attempt to support benefit recipients, but that's after seven years of real terms cuts. We've got the worst wage growth in the last 200 years, and now real term wages are falling. One in five who are in work are actually in poverty. And yet what they haven't done is touch bankers' bonuses. What they haven't done, why, for example, is the bank levy being cut from 8% to 3%? when actually the banks are going to earn more money in interest rates for the money that they have to leave at the Bank of England. The OBR puts the cost of doing that for the Bank of England having to pay banks' interest rate for their deposits at £60 Many, many different choices could have been made than were made by this third iteration of a Tory government in as many months. So, no, I don't think it's compassionate. There was no sign that there was going to be any growth anywhere. 
it's cleaning up a mess of their own making, but it doesn't get very far at all to ensuring that we're on an even footing. There's no real sign of a growth strategy, which is what we need to break out of the vicious cycle they've put us in. And there were no apologies and no shame for the mess that they've made. Adam of Onward, Angela just mentioned growth there. I read the Onward reaction to your statement. I mean, it seemed like a fairly positive response. You talked about how the Chancellor put the economy back on a sustainable footing and looked to take steps to restore credibility. Uh, but you also talked about how there was much more to do in terms of levelling up and have as little time to achieve that. And you also touched upon how growth is important. And I, and I think, to paraphrase, you said that it's not massively clear in the in the Austin Statement how that's going to be achieved. Do you want to sort of talk about Onward's reaction to the Austin Statement, what, what what you're happy with, but perhaps what you're, what, what you're um, concerned about and critical of as well? The really important thing that the Chancellor needed to do was restore stability and to be honest some economic credibility we saw earlier this year a few months ago for the first time labor overtaking the conservatives in terms of trust on the economy that's pretty unsurprising given some of the factors that angela rightly pointed to both some of the long-term challenges in terms of wages and some of the more recent challenges due to the uh, the party's flirtation with trustonomics i'm really glad we have moved past that and i think the positive element of what we saw yesterday was the Chancellor recognising reality, moving away from some of the cakeism of the past and introducing a set of measures, you know, with an OBR forecast, with a set of fiscal rules that will be met by the end of this forecasting well, cycle. Can we just look at the fiscal rules that he introduced? I mean, it's been called the Manana target the target that debt should be falling by the end of a five-year period, yeah. not the usual three-year period. And if you look at the figures, he meets it by 0.3% five years out. And he's given himself the chance, not that he'll be Chancellor in five years, of actually rolling it forward every the, year at the end of the process every year. So Angela. that's the manual target. If that's a fiscal rule, then it's not a very... Uh, Robust so that the audience for those fiscal rules aren't, aren't the Labour Party, they're the markets, right? And the reason that they're introduced is to ensure that the markets can see that there's some approach towards fiscal credibility. Now, the markets yesterday responded to the autumn statement fairly positively. There was not the massive spike in borrowing costs that we saw due to the mini budget. And I think that's what the Chancellor will be looking at. The reason I think the, the paying back of the uh, debt is backloaded are for two reasons. One of those, of course, is political, that the signal needed to be uh, and was that there'll be investments today in things like education and the NHS, particularly in social care. It is baffling to me that some of the same voices that are saying there is no fiscal hole, we should be borrowing to invest, are now suddenly experts on the fiscal rules and are saying that we should be far more tight now. It's right that there's more investment today in education uh, and that some of those savings are backloaded. But it's not just a political gamble to do that, as in we'll just shunt it to after an election. They are hoping, and I think there's a legitimate hope, that some of the cost of borrowing, the 30 billion that you alluded to, Angela, that's related to nervousness about the mini budget, will reduce over time as there's confidence or more confidence in the British government that will be able to get rid of some of that debt because there'll be more confidence from the markets. So I am hopeful that some of those cuts will not actually need to be made in departmental budgets, but it's right that they plan to make them so they're within their fiscal rules. But 
Stability can't be the only thing that this government is going for. And this, Adam, you said that some of our response was negative or was less positive. Once that stability is restored, both economic and political, to be clear, I was a little bit worried that I'd wake up this morning to, you know, mutiny on their backbenches, etc. There were some clever cabinet appointments that headed that off at the pass. You know, who can argue with more measured defence increases when it's Ben Wallace fronting it? Who can argue with more measured increases in ODI and international aid when it's Andrew Mitchell fronting those. So some of the political rebellions were headed off at the pass. But once the economic and political stability is restored, we need much, much more on two things. One is on growth. So some of the music was was good on the factors that are necessary to growth. R&D, for example, R&D spending was protected and is going to increase. And there was some good move music on capital spending, the fact that those projects are still going ahead, even within the tight fiscal situation. But we're going to need much, much more on how we get R&D spending to the parts of the country that don't currently benefit from it, to our universities, particularly in the North and the Midlands, and our businesses, where R&D intensity is still far too low. Innovation is far behind our international counterparts. And on infrastructure acceleration, we need far, far more on things like planning reform. We are hopeless at getting some of these big projects through quickly and getting them delivered. And infrastructure is definitely not the be-all and end-all for left-behind communities, but connecting them to jobs and opportunities can absolutely help. So we need much, much more on growth. On levelling up... Well, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, come on, Adam, I mean, they've had 12 years and we're in a recession now, which the OBR says is going to last at least a year, which the Bank of England says is going to last two years. And I think we're entitled to judge this government on what it's delivered, which isn't very much in the way of growth, rather than what it says it's going to deliver at some time in the future when it's been in office for 12 years. What we haven't talked about is the fact that a lot of the increases in expenditure are because of the interest payments on the government's debt. Why, for example, did the government start selling inflation-linked national debt? In an era of huge inflation, there was no reason why they had to do that. And when he was Chancellor, Rishi Sunak was directly uh, implicated in that. That's putting our costs up now so there's less money to go invest in things like education and skills. We've got a right to be very sceptical about the press releases that this government keep putting out when actually they don't deliver on very many of them at all. I'm just going to come in here because... We've all touched upon the fact that, and I think it's important to, to sort of communicate to people what this means for them. It's the fact that the most cuts to departments are, are planned to come after the next general election. So, Ollie, what's going on here? Can you sort of break this down and explain what we can expect in the next two years, but what you think is going on behind this decision to postpone these notional cuts? As you say, over, most of the cuts are penciled in for beyond the next general election, beyond the current spending review period. So in the short term, they haven't cut spending on departmental budgets in a significant way. However, those budgets were set in October 2021. And since then, we have had a huge inflation and supply side economic shock. Now, that means that those departmental budgets are worth a lot less than they were when they were originally set. And even when they were originally set, although they were generous historically, they were generous because there were huge backlogs that public services had to deal with. And even at the time, we, the Institute for Government and others, were sceptical that those budgets would be able to help departments address those backlogs, 
get back onto even a sort of pre-COVID level where some were still under strain. So there's a bit of extra funding for health and social care. There's a bit of extra funding for education. That is welcome. But as I said at the top, lots of other public services are facing these same pressures, mostly coming through via the wages of their workers. And they're going to have to make really difficult choices over the next few years. So I think we should still expect backlogs and struggling public services over the next few years particularly where extra funding hasn't been allocated now that obviously has a significant impact on people's well-being but there's also growth implications if we look at what's happening to the labor market loads of people are dropping out because they have poor health lots of people are saying that we can explain a lot of that through the size of nhs backlogs and that sort of thing now In terms of what they're doing in the long term and penciling in those cuts, I think there's a generous and a not so generous interpretation. The generous interpretation is that they are just quite optimistic about what will happen in the future. So even this economic forecast was conditioned on energy forecasts and interest rate forecasts from a couple of weeks ago. Those are already pretty out of date and things have actually improved. So interest rate expectations are lower energy price expectations are lower. I think the government will be hoping that things continue to improve. There is some resolution to the Russia-Ukraine conflict that ends the global economic fallout from that. That will give it a lot more fiscal space and will allow it to increase spending on public services in the period for which it is currently penciled in cuts. The slightly less generous interpretation is that it's not really based on that sort of economic analysis perhaps expecting that they might not be the ones to have to make those difficult choices later down the line to actually set the spending review. So they're penciling in the cuts to essentially meet their new fiscal rules, which, as Angela says, are are much looser than the last set. It's the ninth set we've had in 15 years. We tend to get a new set whenever the old set gets broken. They've broken every single one as well. Yes, I I think this this sort of act of, of penciling in the cuts is probably politically convenient but there is also reason to believe that things might get better which will allow them to revise the plans down the line. Mm. Following your autumn statement yesterday us journalists we had a what we usually do we had a briefing from Mm. the treasury team when we ask questions and, and they walk us through the statement and they were keen to stress that the planned cuts were nowhere near as large as what Osborne did in what I mean what's the reaction to that Ollie and 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 so and, so, and talk about the politics of that Angela the interpretation Ollie talked about that the Tories realize they're probably not going to win the next election so we're just going to leave all this difficult stuff for Labour do you think that's what's going on here so coming to you first Ollie on on yeah. the comparisons with Osborne that might be right but it's important to note the situation that we're in Osborne made the cuts to what were relatively strong public services and in a time where there may have been efficiencies to be found right but we our public services have just experienced austerity 1.0 if you want to call it that facing significant pressure and then have just got through covid which caused lots of backlogs lots of additional stresses our performance tracker which is a sort of survey of the health of public services shows that essentially all of them are flashing red Mm. so yes the percentage change might not be as large as under Osborne 
but there is much, much, much less room for cuts. I mean, we put out a paper a few weeks ago on lessons to learn from the 2010s, essentially arguing this exact point that we are not there and it is much more difficult to deliver those sort of cuts because of the strain that public services are under, but also because of the pressure on public sector wages. It's really difficult to cut public sector wages which is a a sort of large a large factor driving spending growth at the moment one reason is just you probably want to give public sector workers a a pay rise given the level of inflation at the moment the second is you need to if you want to recruit and retain good quality public sector workers and we're seeing recruitment and retention difficulties across all public services there is no factor cut really yes so angela just coming to the politics of this do you suspect that's what's going on that the conservatives realize that right now labor is in a good position to form the next government and they're they're postponing those very difficult decisions for when keir and rachel are, are in the hot seat well, obviously, that's what they're they're planning to do. It's highly political and not economic, which is not exactly showing responsibility uh, for them to do that. But let's face it, we will be weaker and poorer at the end of this parliament than we were at the beginning. And people will be paying more for less in terms of public services. There are already serious recruitment issues which are affecting the efficiency of the way public services are delivered. Let me just give you one example. My local hospital has got around every day 200 to 250 beds blocked by people who could go out back into the community if there was some domiciliary care to ensure that they could recover at home. At the moment... There are such shortages of workers in domiciliary care because the wages are so low. And so what you've got there is the health service being made less efficient, waiting lists getting longer because wages are too low in the domiciliary care sector. That is just one example of what is now beginning to happen. And let's face it, public sector workers deserve, as do all workers, a decent return for working hard and keeping the country going through the pandemic when we had all the lockdowns. So this is not a situation that can be born for very much longer if there's going to be equity in our country. Mm. Uh, Adam, just to come back to to growth, so the next election's two years away, that'll fly round. What do you think the government realistically can achieve in terms of growth? I think the OBR said that the most obvious route to growth would be high levels of net migration, but obviously that's politically problematic for the Conservatives. So what, what, what does Onward think the government can do? And um, let's be clear, none of us here are part of the anti-growth coalition. We all, we all, we all, we all support growth. It's what, what do you think the government can do realistically within this pretty grim economic context and the time we have until the next election to kickstart some national growth? So I think the prospects of returning to really high levels of 10 growth are are pretty bleak. I think there are big demographic and structural factors that mean that's unlikely. But growth can absolutely be higher than it is at the moment. In the next couple of years, the things that they really need to focus on are are skills. So one of the reasons that I don't believe we should go back towards a model of really high net migration is that for too long in the UK, businesses have underinvested in the skills of their workers. And that's partly them responding to reasonable incentives because it's easier just to bring labour in. So I want to see massive investments in vocational and technical education. It was a shame yesterday there wasn't more of an emphasis on colleges as well as on schools. So I think that's one of the big things as well as 
actually getting some of these capital projects moving. I'd be amazed if the government actually deliver even the allocated capital spend there is at the moment. So they've got to get trains, trams, etc., houses built. But the trend growth is not just the thing that matters. The levelling up agenda pointed to the fact that for too many communities in recent decades, growth hasn't been, you, you know, been able to touch, taste and feel that growth in their local area. So I think within the next two years, there needs to be movement on the things that matter to people in the parts of the country that voted Conservative for the first time in 2019. And our work shows that those things are tackling antisocial behaviour. People do not feel safe on the streets. And that's partly about policing numbers that was such a big focus in 2019. But it's also about activities uh, for young people to make sure that they're not spending their time around tram stations in Oldham, where we did some work recently, or in, in other parts of the country. But it's also about making sure that high streets and town centres have some vibrancy to them. I think Westminster sometimes sneers at the idea that government would spend its time clearing up graffiti or improving park benches. But actually, if you live in a place that looks and feels run down, you feel forgotten about and you feel like your government, whether that's local government, national government, politicians have abandoned you. So yes, we need to do the big bang, productivity focused growth stuff nationally. But locally, we need to show that we're willing to turn around the tangible things that people see day in and day out. I don't disagree with any of that, but let's look at what the OBR actually says. The only bit of uh, the government's plans that the OBR think contribute to growth is actually the fact that immigration is still high and will remain high. So there's no obvious cut in immigration as the Tories promised at the last election. And we know that they've put many, many press releases out about levelling up and none of it's happened. If you were in the chamber yesterday, you would have heard those MPs that represent the areas uh, where Northern Power Rail is meant to be being delivered, complaining that it's been cut, Northern Powerhouse Rail. So the lines in between Cambridge and Oxford are fine, but the lines between Hull, Bradford and further other northern parts have all disappeared. So I, I take levelling up and these claims that the government have with a complete pinch of salt. They put many, many press releases out about it and they never deliver it. Adam, can I just come back to you? Because you talked about, you know, improving town centres and for, that's one thing you mentioned. And, you know, I can speak from experience here. Over the weekend, I was back up in my hometown, which is Bower in Furness. And I'm sure that's somewhere that Onward has looked at as part of its research into levelling up. And I remember that, that town centre, which when I was younger, used to be a real social hub. Most premises were filled by shops. It was somewhere where people went at the weekend and enjoyed doing so. Now it's absolutely deserted. There are so many boarded up buildings. And when I speak to my family and friends up there, they're, they're not just sad about it, they're quite embarrassed actually by, by, by the site of their town centre and they're, they're embarrassed by the idea of people coming to visit Barrow and seeing the sorry state it's become. And this comes to where I want to sort of close the podcast, which is about the politics of this. In terms of delivering that sort of change, you know, improving town centres and whatnot, do you think the Conservatives face an issue in that achieving that sort of change in the time that remains before the next election is going to be difficult for them? It's going to be a huge challenge. And the single most important thing they can do to accelerate delivery is to stop trying to do it from the centre and from Whitehall. These sorts of changes will only be delivered 
by local government and by regional government, by council leaders and by mayors. And so I was really pleased yesterday to see the announcement of more metro mayors, more people like Andy Street, Ben Housh and Andy Burnham in Suffolk, Norfolk, Cornwall and the Northeast. That is a good thing. But we also need to be clear that local government are going to need greater capacity. Now, some of that is about funding and the government needs to have a really positive local government settlement. Now, the numbers that are going to be hard, but it's also about capacity. We need to be giving local authorities more powers to do things in high streets, have more housing in high streets because they're not going to be retail led, to have more community ownership of assets and to change our public realm, to invest in uh, new green spaces in city centres and town centres. These sorts of things you cannot do from SW1. So I want to see a lot more movement on devolution Mm. because that's how you deliver stuff within a couple of years. I mean, again, I I can't disagree with the theory of that, but let's look at the practice of what's actually happened while this government have been in power. They have slashed local government budgets and they started off by slashing the budgets of the uh, poorest areas which were usually labour-led authorities the most. My own local authority in Wirral has had 86% of its funding taken off it Uh, and and so to hear somebody who's supporting the Conservative cause make an argument like that with which I don't disagree and then look at the record of what this government have actually done to local government funding which has absolutely more than decimated the capacity of local authorities to do even the basics even their statutory duties hard to deal with uh, now given the funding settlements that they've had and by the way I noted with respect to social care, that the idea for extra money in social care is for local authorities to be able to put the council tax up again. There are some local authority areas like mine which have far more lower value houses which can't even ensure that they pay for the increases needed in social care with that kind of increase. And so, again, uh, local authorities are often in this government cut to the bone and then blamed when they can't deliver services. So it's going to be a transformation that will take a lot longer than two years if that vision of local place-based devolved development is ever going to come into effect. And I think this government, frankly, after 12 years, is incapable of delivering it. So to end, Ollie, I don't expect you to comment on the politics. That's not your job at IFG. But looking ahead to the next election, which, which we expect to be sometime in 2024, what state do you expect the country, the economy, people's finances to be in when they go to the ballot box and decide whether to keep the Conservatives in power for yet another term or give Labour a chance? Well, as it stands, it looks like the election will coincide with the peak of the worst crisis in living standards that we have seen since the Second World War. That is what is going to dominate politics for the remainder of this parliament. I completely agree with Adam that more work on the structural factors that drive growth, more work on levelling up would be amazing. But I think that this government is going to remain occupied by this cost of living crisis and how to help people when it's already not got a lot of headroom against the new fiscal targets, it's just set itself. They're going to be hoping that things end up a lot better than currently forecast. That would happen if there's an end to Russia-Ukraine war. But I don't think that's going to happen. The government's track record, or you know how Sunak and Hunt are seen when we have that election, will depend on how they approach making policy going forwards. As it stands, cost of living crisis 
policy response, as Angela said, has just been lots and lots and lots of budgets under lots and lots of different chancellors. And each time they sort of announce a set of policies to fill the gap for the next few months, really blunt instruments like the transfers to people on benefits and, and, and pensions that, that Hunt announced yesterday or huge subsidies. You know, they, they need to be doing some really deep thinking about a plan that will see them through the next few years rather than sort of being pushed to crisis and having to do an emergency fiscal announcement. If they carry on doing that, I think they'll be probably be seen as, quite rightly, as quite incompetent. I'm going to wrap it up there, a very lively but hopefully a helpful and informative discussion. You can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep arrived up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletter by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of our website. Thanks to our brilliant guests for their time, Angela Regal, Adam Hawksby and Ollie Bartram. Our editor today was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach out to us on Twitter at, at @politicshome or email us at via news at For now, I've been Adam Payne, and this has been The Rundown, and have a lovely weekend. <laughs>